You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. you have your Bibles, please turn to 2 Samuel chapter 24. Just uh, wanted to, again, thanks, thank Dennis for his, uh, his testimony this morning and his, I guess, you, his repentance this morning, honestly. Uh, I think that's something that a lot of us, I know for me as a father and husband, I go through, and uh, I think a lot of us can agree with that, but not many of us would stand on a stage and, and proclaim that, and uh, that's ties in really well with what we plan to talk about today, and that's, that it's, we talked about it with the David and Bathsheba story, but that it's not about the sin in your life. It's about the response to it. So we're going to be highlighting the response to our sin as we go through this story. And before we get started, I just have to say, I was really excited because, you know, at Hyde Park, we plan our series out uh, a little in advance. And so what scripture we plan to talk about, you know, we pray over it. And uh, I mean, you've seen many times, sometimes the Lord goes in different directions and we, we go elsewhere. But for the most part, we try to plan out where our church is, the direction it's moving, and, and what, what the Lord would have us to, to teach or preach. And it's, it had begun to be a pattern where wherever I would happen to fall in and preaching, and some of you guys are smiling already because you know where I'm going with this, somehow I always got like the, the weird texts. And I was like, okay, I see what you're doing now, Jeff, Okay. We had the life of Abraham, so many great things, and I get circumcision. We have the life of David, all these great things, and I get the Bathsheba story, right? I just kept falling. I was like, all right, what is the deal? Well, when I found out that I got to preach chapter 24 of 2 Samuel, I had to go remind myself what it was about. So I looked at it real quick, and it was just in passing when we were talking. So you know the little subtitles? I looked at it, and it was like David counts his fighting men, and David builds an altar. I was like, oh, cool, a census and construction project. This is going to be dope. That's easy. Finally, thank you, Jeff. He's like, yeah, no problem. And then I come to find out it's one of the most like, controversial texts in the entire Bible because in the world of apologetics, and for those of y'all who don't know what apologetics are, it's just the proving of your, of your faith or the arguing of your faith, using scriptural to back it up. And people who are opposed to our, our, our belief system, this is one of their favorite chapters in the Bible because they believe they found a contradiction in our Bible. And I was like, I thought I got off easy. I thought I finally got a normal sermon. Like, let me, I was telling, I think it was Dennis before the service started, I was like, man, I just want to preach on like the days of creation. It's like, says what it says, says what it is, and we roll with it. No, I've always got to chew on it, but I thank, I'm thankful for that because that is the Lord allowing Jeff to disciple me in that way. But man, what a text. So get your, get your thinky caps on. If you're a note taker, I hope you brought a pencil sharpener. We got some good stuff today. I'm really excited, but don't allow the knowledge of the words take away from the power within them. Don't, don't hear this as me reading from Scripture. Don't hear this as me teaching uh, a lesson but hear it as the actual voice of God speaking through his word. And my job is just to allow you to hear that and to demonstrate that. So I pray this morning that you are challenged by it and that you are uh, incited to respond, just respond to it. 
So where we had left off with, with me speaking, it works out kind of that Jeff preached last week and now where we're at in the passage, uh, I'm here because I want to focus on the same thing I focused on with David and Bathsheba. And again, that was that sin is sin. It's an equal playing field. We are all uh, equivalent in that. We can't put ourselves in a hierarchy of who is better and who is, who is worse. It's like it was said by the worship team. You didn't get your salvation based on your good works. And we are all on an even playing field. We sin daily. We are made in, in a way. We are bred in a way. We, are, uh, we just are sinful people. I always think of sin as S-I-N, selfish in nature. We are selfish in nature. It is our actual na- nature. It's our natural desire to serve ourselves, and it's very sinful. We can't help it. But us as people, we have emotional and humanistic qualities that we add to try to gauge how big sin is. Y'all remember me talking about that? And so I tried to nip that in the butt and say the person that stubbed their toe and says a bad word is equivalent to somebody who commits a mass murder because if you take away the emotion and the humanistic qualities of it, sin is death in both those situations. They both are just doing what's called destroying the kingdom of God. And that's what all of us do daily, and that's why we are all recalled to respond in a certain way. And God saw that, and He knew that before the salvation story. So obviously your worth is to God is not in your sin. Dennis stole my sermon, but I love it. I love it. I'm, I was tempted just to give him the mic and say, hey, bro, you got it, big dog. I loved it this morning. And I said, well, look at God at work. Look at God at work because the exact thing that we, we need to focus on is our response to sin. We remember that with David and Bathsheba, his response to sin was how? He wanted to hide it. He wanted to preserve himself, and by himself I mean his reputation, his stature, uh, who he was in the community, uh, who people thought he was in relationship to God. He did whatever he could, including the murder of a close friend and high-up military uh, official, to do it. He would do whatever he had to. So it wasn't that he committed those acts with Bathsheba, and it wasn't, in fact, the actual murder that hurt the kingdom of God the most. It was the response he took to those sins, and we saw that. Well, this week, I'm excited to say, because like I told you, David is my boy, and I get tired of preaching on David's downfalls because I consider myself like a David. My biggest struggle is pride. This is where we get to see David respond correctly, and we get to see the revival in his life that that leads to the revival of the people around him. And if we're called to bring as many people to the throne as possible, it shows that the best way to do it is to have a revival in your own heart. And we see that the revival is, is prompted by David's repentive, his repentive uh, attitude, his repentive response. So uh, I'm breaking the Baptist code here. I don't have a three-point sermon. I got four points, so stick with me. I know after I hit three, some of you guys are going to close your Bible and say, what? There's four points this morning. We're going to look at uh, the response to sin, delight in, how to delight in repentance. But our four points are, and they're kind of in chronological order of the act of repentance. We're going to look at God's sovereignty. We're going to move to our pride. Then God's mercy and our worship. So the recognition of God's sovereignty over all, our pride responding to that, God's mercy on our pride, and then our worship in response to His mercy. So let's go ahead and get to the text. Starting in verse 1 of Second Samuel Chapter 24. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. Boom, stop right there. Here we go. One verse read, and we are already into major controversy. And I even thought to myself, 
I might not even address this controversy because really I could go through this chapter and we could get what, what we need about the response to sin without having to get into those details. But I know for a fact that Satan's first weapon will be to point you to the scripture that makes it seem as though it's a contradictory. And then that'll be all she wrote because all he needs is one little bit of doubt or one little bit of questioning or confusion. And that's it. But by disproving that this, what I'm about to show you is a contradiction, it'll also demonstrate the sovereignty of God. And that's exactly what we're looking for. So right here it says that who burned against, anger burned against Israel and incited David to take up the census? The Lord. But if you turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 21, in verse 1, because you know, 2 Samuel, I mean, the, the book, the first and 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles are both the, the uh, narratives of, of David's life. And this is one of the few times where we actually have the same story told in both. In this one, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census. Okay. We know the Bible doesn't contradict itself. We know the Bible is all true. We know that God has purpose in everything that's in here. Nothing's in here by mistake. He didn't need to spell check. He didn't need to ask somebody to read and proofread. So how come one says God did it and another says that David, I mean that, that Satan did it? And you see where the confusion can start and we're in verse 1, right? Thank you, Jeff. The reason that this is in there is to prove the sovereignty of God. To prove the sovereignty of God. See, God's anger was towards Israel because at this point, they've put all their base of belief and faith and their, their trust and their security in the success of a king. And they've been bouncing king to king and bouncing to follow this, follow that. They were looking elsewhere other than the one true God. They had uh, taken security in uh, Absalom. They had taken security in Sheba. Nothing was working. They were just lack of faith. There was a major lack of faith and it was just harming the kingdom of God, and he was upset about it because he had done nothing but to provide and protect the children of Israel. This, this was like his, his jewel. He made them all kinds of promises to multiply them, to, to make them prosperous. And uh, we know that Satan is always, always wanting to get in and mess with God's things, but God had always protected them. And when he sees that their desire is just to go elsewhere for, for security and for faith, and for guidance, and for leadership, and authority. He just got more and more angry. But more importantly, as the shepherd of these people, as the king of these people, even whether, whether or not they see it or not, he knew that they needed to be brought back. And so, much like in the story of Job, he realized that Satan had a strong desire to mess with what God had planned for Israel. And, he, and Satan desired to get his hands on things. And much like in the story of Job, the Lord gave him permission. See, the word incited is used in both. And when it's used when God incited David, it said a permission was given, the Hebrew version. And then if you look at incited, when Satan, it was the committing of an action. God gave permission to Satan to commit this action. Now that brings up a couple eyebrows, right? Why would God allow Satan to mess with his children? Well, first off, you need to understand that God said that he puts nothing on us in which we cannot bear. So he understands what you're capable of, and he understands of who you are and your heart's desires. He understands what will make you fall and what will make you rise, and he understands that sometimes a fall is what will make you rise. And he's willing to do whatever it takes to put you where he needs you to be and where you are called to be, even if it means allowing you to fall victim to your own temptations. 
And we have got to stop as a church giving Satan the sovereignty that God deserves. Because so many times we try to say that Satan got me, I fell to Satan, I've been uh, addicted to this, and Satan just got me binded, and this, that, and the other. We give Satan so much power when Satan cannot touch anything that God has created without first going to God. But we give Satan almost as though it's a God versus Satan world and we're living in it when really it is a God rules everything and Satan's begging for attention. Satan's the annoying three-year-old toddler that God just every now and then says, go ahead, you'll learn your lesson. And he doesn't give up. He's lost a thousand times. When God gave him permission to go incite David to do the census, I can imagine him saying, finally, I get my hands on Israel. And God's like, you just wait. You're about to bring on a revival and you don't even know it, Satan. But yet, we sit there and sit in darkness and give Satan all this power and all this control. Like, man, it's just such a dark place. I'm so, so lonely. God allowed anything that happens in your life to happen. He is the creator of all and he is sovereign of all. Even those things. You might be saying, well, that's still kind of mean. Why would God, you know, why would God do that? Okay, well, how about this? A lamb is probably the, one of the cutest animals in the entire world. Okay? Let's just get that out there. Or a sheep, whatever you want to say. Can, can I get an amen to that? I love lamb. Thank you, okay? The example of God returning the lost or the strayed away is to break their leg. Like break their leg in his hands. You might think, oh, that is kind of a, a cruel example. Right. But he would rather have a sheep that's been broken and hurt that will eventually heal than have a sheep stray away and be lost to the wolves. So God is going to use Satan, even though Satan for some reason always believes that it's God turning Satan loose. God is going to use Satan through the life of David to break the leg of Israel and return it to its rightful place under the rule of him, or in recognition of the fact that they're under the rule of him. So God knows that if David is incited to take up a census, he is going to do it in a way that is not honoring to him, and he is going to fall. But the fall of Israel's king is what needs to happen for the revival of Israel to happen, because they're going to see the response that he takes to it and follows suit. Just understand that God cannot rise up against anything and that you are never under the mercy of Satan. Ever. Even when Satan is attacking you. Which nine times out of ten he's not. He's sitting back laughing as you attack yourself. But even when that's happening, you're still under the sovereignty of God. So if things are hard, things are dark, things are lonely, stop battling Satan and Go talk to the one and say, God, why? Let him tell you. And watch as things begin to, re- to be revealed to you. So God's sovereignty only took one verse, and he demonstrated that. So can we agree? That's not a contradiction. That's God demonstrating that he has control of even the one that we pretend to fear. Amen? As we move into our pride, verse 2 through 10, we're going to see David act on his pride. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders and, and him, uh, with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel and, Dan, and from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. Important word is that I may know. Uh, but Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over and may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does my king delight in such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders, so they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. And then I don't want to uh, discredit any scripture, but the next uh, couple of verses, the importance of them is it just shows they went straight north. All these different places that you may not know where they are geographically, they just went straight north and they did a complete circle. 
So they got all of Israel. So going through those places, uh, we'll jump down to verse 8. After they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to the king. Y'all ready for this? In Israel, there was 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword. And in Judah, 500,000. So let's talk about David's struggle. We say that, yes, he committed adultery and lust and murder, but we understand that the deep root of all of these things happening was his pride. And his pride has come from his success, it has come from his place of authority, it has come from his rule, and it has come from his lack of giving God the attention for it. See, he at one point was living in a way that was pleasing to God and that he gave God credit for all that was happening in his life. Matter of fact, we saw him as a boy face the giant and, at, and the giant kind of scoffed at him like, just you? And he says, I don't care that there's no number of men because my God fights with me. And here he's saying, go count the men so that I know how many I got. And now we might be saying, well, why is it sinful if God wanted the census to happen and he was obedient to that? Why was it sinful? We also know that David takes pride in the fact that he is an upholder of the law and knows the law. And in many of his Psalms, he says that his, the Lord, your statutes are in my heart. And my ways are by your laws. He takes pride in the fact that he has been given the position to uphold the law. And he takes pride in God bestowing knowledge of the law on him. The issue is, that means he shot himself in the foot because he can't plead ignorance now. He knows. Right? It's kind of nice when you get in trouble for something and you can kind of get, get away with it. Like, oh, I didn't know. I'm sorry. I'm like, all right, well, just don't let it happen again. He already used all those Monopoly cards, get out of jail free cards. He, he, he wrote books and books saying, I know your law. I desire to keep your law. I just love everything about your law. Okay, well, if that's what you're going to say. So why would it be uh, sinful for him to take up a census that he was called to take up? And uh, Exodus Chapter 30, verse 12 through 13. The command was given to Moses to do the same thing, and the, the law of how to do it was given with a very intentional purpose. He says in verse 12, When you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay a lord a ransom for his life if they, uh, at the time that he is counted. Then no plague will come on them when you number them. Each one who crosses over those already counted to give a half shekel according to the sanctuary shekel which weighs 20 geras. This half shekel is an offering to the Lord. So the issue is, David knows the law. David knows that when you take up a census, you are called to give almost similar to our tithe. You are called for each person that is counted, they are to give a shekel to the tabernacle. They are to give a shekel to the church because it is an offering to the Lord for their life. What that means is, that is them saying, I am here to be counted present for the for the census, and you are the reason I am able to be counted. You are the reason for my life. And they give an offering to God, thanking them for their life. And it goes to the church. It goes to the tabernacle. Well, the issue is when David does his census, that is their way to publicly recognize that their kingdom follows God. Each and every single person follows God and is therefore God, and God is their ruler and their king. Unfortunately, he doesn't do that. When he realizes he didn't do that, he didn't do the, when somebody's passed over and forgotten to pay, give a half shekel for them. He, he doesn't do that. 
And he doesn't say that the Lord, let, let, me, uh, let me know how many I have so that uh, we can report this to God, he asked for it, or so that we can give praises to God for the multiplication that he has given us as he had promised, so that we may worship. No, he says, so that I may know. Bring me back this number so that I may know. And much like in the David and Bathsheba story, we see where God tried to give him some opportunities. It's almost like uh, God knew he was going to mess up, but he's like, man, I ho- this can't happen. But he's like, man, I hope David proves me wrong. You know that kind of thing? Like, I'm pretty sure he's going to mess up, but I hope he proves me wrong. He gave him a couple of roadblocks on the way, a couple opportunities to, to do what was right. For example, when he wanted to be with Bathsheba, he sent the servant, and, uh, and the servant gave a very not customary um, introduction. He was like, that's somebody's wife, that's somebody's daughter. Uh, the law says not to go outside your marriage, that's, but that's Bathsheba. Kind of trying to, the servant knew what was going through David's head, and he was trying to tell him, like, Hold on, hold on. Here, Joab. And this is how you know that this is God stepping in. Joab was the same guy that when David said, hey, I need you to kill Uriah in battle, Joab was like, done, king, got your back. But then David says, hey, Joab, I need you to go count some heads. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Going a little too far here. What kind of sense does that make? Kill a man, done. Count how many people are in that room. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're asking a little, that's a little, a, little, a little insane. Joab understood the king's pride. He understood the turmoil that everybody was under. You have to remember, Joab is more in the streets than in the palace. He's, he has an understanding of the people. He also understands the pride of the king. And with that, he understands that if you take a census of fighting men, imagine somebody walks up to your door, knock, 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 and says, hey, if we were to go to war, how many guys in here would be able to go? Okay, just check in and walk away. What's the conversation in that house after that person leaves? Yo, we're going to war. Are they going to come take you? Like, what? No, we should have said zero. Like, what's going on? He knew the uproar that that would cause. Not only Joab, but it says that all the commanders tried to stop this census from happening. So in this moment, he had a lot of Nathans and a lot of servants right there that were like, the Lord said he's going to bless your numbers. You You don't need to count them. The number doesn't matter. God said he's got you. I can imagine one of them being like, dude, remember Goliath? Like, you do that by yourself. Why do you need the number? No, he wanted to hear the 1.3 million. And so he just, he just completely went away from that. David ignores the God-sent counsel of Joab and the commanders. He claims them as his people. Let, them, let me know so that I may know the number. Tell me. See, he's puffed up about this number because at this point, uh, David has grown so powerful and Israel had grown so powerful with their military that the neighboring cities have been, began to pay tribunes. Meaning, on the outside, it looks like they're just saying, wow, you have such a mighty kingdom. We just want to honor you. Wow, this is just great. You've done a fantastic job. Take our money. This is good. Well, we'll be your ally. When really, it's please don't invade us. Please don't invade us. Please don't cross our border. We love you so much. Stay away from us. And so, of course, I mean, David could easily have given it back and said, it is not of my doing. It is of my father. And may he bless your kingdom as well. No, he's like, you're right. I am doing good. You're right. Thank you. That's right. He was collecting these tributes. He was in a, in a state of mind where people were just, it wasn't helping. People were just pummeling him up. Luckily, his response changes, and the Lord is going to smite his heart. It's going it's to pierce through his heart. I think about 
Uh, I've used this part of my testimony before, but with wrestling, wrestling was all I knew growing up, wrestled forever. My dad was a wrestler. Um, And the reason I was so prideful is because I had a lot of support, and my dad was a psycho with the training, and I became very successful. But I didn't have a king at at that time, so my successes were of my own doing. My uh, future in college, I got into college because of my own doing. I set up a lot of things for my life through the sport of wrestling because of my own doing. Now, I thank my dad for pushing me and training me. I thank my coaches, but at the end of the day, I'm on the podium, baby, right? And that's how I was. And then I got saved, and then I got a king, and then I was disobedient, and I continued to be prideful. And then he blew my knee out, and I could never wrestle again. So I am literally that lamb. And I just think about with David. He had gotten to that position on top of his podium of my own doing, of my own doing. But the sad thing is, the difference in me and David is, he's without excuse. As a young child, we saw the best example. We, we saw him placed as a king because he ruled people, the people in the way that Christ was to come. And that was to be willing to lay down his life for the children of God. He is referred to as the shadow of the coming Christ. Because he reflected what it would be like to live under, under Christ's rule. And that's that he would be willing to lay his life down. And then the pride stepped in. And it blew up. And we got to this point where when he committed sin, he no longer felt the need to repent, but the need to cover up and correct. But thank God that he pierced his heart in this scripture. As we move from our pride and look into God's mercy in verse 11. Before David got up the next morning, uh, oh no, verse 10, sorry. David was conscience stricken. Some say his heart was smited. After he had counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, O Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. But before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come upon you three years of famine in your land, or three, years of fleeing, or three uh, months of you fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of plague in your, uh, in your land? Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. See, when you delight in sin, it brings distress. He said, let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into the hands of man. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from the morning until the end of the time designated. And some say that from the morning until the time of supper or until that evening. And 70,000 people from Dan to Beersheba died when the angel stretched out Uh, his hand to destroy Jerusalem. The Lord was grieved because of the calamity. And he said to the angel who was afflicting to the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me and my family. 
So we see the different response that David has. In previous scenarios, we see where David cared about his own reputation so much that he would be willing to destroy anybody outside of his own personal home to uphold that reputation, to uphold that stature. And now we see where David has turned back into the man that God originally called him to be, willing to lay his life down for the people, willing to lay his life down for the children of God. And you might be saying, well, duh, he should lay his life down. He's the one that did the sin. It's bigger than just this census sin. God is angered with the entire Israel and Judah because of the rebellion that it had become from being the city of David, the, the children of God. But in this moment, there's more to that scripture. David is not just saying, Lord, I messed up with this census thing and this little thing here and this little... He's saying, no, Lord, you told me to run this country as your servant to protect and guide the children of God, much like you will be sending your son. But I have failed you, and I understand that they have sinned against you and caused this place to fall to turmoil, but it is because of my leadership. They are but sheep. That's the important part of that. He says, they're but sheep, meaning they know not what they do. They are following me, and I have failed you because I have led them over a cliff. Do not take your, your, your wrath out on them. Take it out on me. Take it out on me. David's saying, I will lay my life down to give life to these people. And because of that, God looks at the angel of the Lord who was going to town, doing what he was called to do, doing what he was instructed to do under God's sovereignty. And the Lord looks at the calamity, and he was grieved. And if you look, it's almost a little, uh, not out of order, but it shows the action stop. But then it shows, right after it, it shows that David was watching the angel strike down. So it just meant that they were happening at the same time. So God looked at the angel that he was striking down, and then he was able to look over and see that David was begging for mercy for his people and take my life instead. And then he was, God was grieved, and he stopped it. God's mercy is on the repentant heart. God's mercy is on the obedient servant. Because see, David had gotten to a really bad point where all he cared about, he would rather die with his position and reputation upheld, doing zero work for the kingdom of God, than to die for the kingdom of God. And the revival that he has is that he's back to where he could care less about his name amongst people. He could care less. He would lay down his life for them, understanding that they are the children of God. There was a funny story that I heard, and uh, just kind of gives, gives to uh, where David was, just kind of break the tension a little bit is a man, that, it was an elderly man, and he was a hardworking man, and he got all kinds of money, but he didn't like to use the government or the bank, so he put all, all of it in his mattress. And uh, when he was on his deathbed, he looked at his daughter, and he said, hey, I've got a lot of money in my mattress. I want you to take that money. And you would expect him to say, you know, put it to my grandkids or whatever. He says, it's mine. I want you to bury me with it. Put it in my coffin and bury me with it. He wanted to take everything. He, was, he, he cared more about that than to help those after him. So like a good daughter, she took all the money out of the mattress. She put it in the bank, and she wrote him a check and put it in his pocket and said he can cash it whenever he wants. And she buried him. Just a funny story to break the tension, but it is important that we need to understand that David had gotten to such a dark place that he would be much like that man. He would die with all that he had thought he accomplished before giving recognition and doing what he's called to do with it. 
And luckily, we see this revival. God is finally going to respond in a way that we would like to see happen to David because David finally responded to sin in a way that he is supposed to respond. So remember, it is not about our sin. It is about our response to it. Because David used to tell giants his confidence was in, was, in, was in God alone. David used to do all these different things, but now he's back. So let's look at how uh, we see that God was sovereign of all. We see that our pride steps in and causes us to uh, destroy what God wants us to do. But then with a repentant heart, God shows his mercy. And I believe that mercy is something worth worship. So now we're going to see what it looks like to worship after that. So as we continue... Uh, in verse 18, it says, On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunah, the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Arunah looked and saw the king and his men coming uh, toward him, he went out and he bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Arunah said, Why has my lord the king come to this, uh, come to his servant? So remember, David had gotten to the point where he would send people out to do God's work. He would send people out to go battle. Like uh, the Lord said to go plow this field, and David told David to do that. And he would say, hey, Bob, the Lord needs that field planted, or that field plowed. He became that person. People got to where they had stopped seeing David often. And so when this guy sees him, he's like, whoa, when he runs out and bows, and he says, what are you doing here? Like, why are you here? The king left his throne and was willing to go do the work of God amongst servants. Kind of a bit of foreshadowing there, amen? It shows you that David is obedient and, and, and being who he was called to be. He says, I'm here to buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague of the people may be stopped. And Aruna said to David, let my Lord the king take whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are the oxen of the burnt offering and here's the threshing sledges and the ox yokes for the wood. O king, Aruna gives all this to the king. Aruna also said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Aruna, and this is a great memory verse, a great scripture, Second Samuel 24, 24. But the king replied to Aruna, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God something that is of no sacrifice to me. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer on behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. So some important things we see in that text is that David, again, he went himself. He left his throne to do the work of the kingdom, and he demonstrates his obedience to God's call. He also went there with the objective to build an altar. And in these time periods, building an altar meant more than just a place of sacrifice and of, 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 of offerings, but it, it was usually put in a high place to be seen by the neighboring cities. And you could tell what the allegiance religiously of that place was based on that. And he wanted to build an elaborate, uh, elaborate altar because that was the stopping point of the angel of the Lord. Remember, it says when the angel was about to cast down his hand, that's where he was. He was at the threshing floor of that place. So as a thank you, but also as a symbol that Israel is yet again recognizing that we are under the kingship of God Almighty, he built an altar in that location. And he paid 50, uh, he paid, uh, 50 shekels of silver for them, which is a lot. So and even in that, money is no longer 
an option. Like, he doesn't care about that. He refuses to take the animals free. Because a sacrifice of worship should be just that, a sacrifice. Dennis talked about, I really didn't feel like coming up here. I'm beaten, tired, I'm broken down. Y'all saw Dennis up here this morning, right? Awesome sacrifice of worship. I'm not harping on Dennis. I'm harping on the obedience of Dennis to allow that Holy Spirit to move on him this morning. I'm thankful for his repentant heart because that's why that happened. See, it's easy to get stuck in our sin. It's easy to recognize our sin. And even before salvation, it's easy to see why, like he said, don't take a bath to take a shower. It's easy to see why we're not clean. None of us are. None of us are. It's about our response to it. Because look at God. Look at God. David commits yet again another sin for pride. God still hasn't given up on this guy. God still has not given up on this guy. Because he knows the potential and he knows what he's going to do. So David, sin and sin and sin and sin and sin and sin and sin. Nikki, sins and sins and sins and sin and sin and sin and sin and sin. Any name, sin, 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 sin. That's not what it's about. It's about our response to it. Are we going to respond with that self-preservation? Are we going to respond with that guilt and try to fix? Or are we going to respond with conviction and repentance and allow God to show His mercy? And when He shows His mercy, are we going to then respond with worship and in true understanding? Because see, God stopped the casting of the angel of the Lord that was destroying people instantly. But obviously there was still a plague because it says that after He did these actions, the plague stopped. He finally gave it to God. Even when given three choices of consequence, he never made a choice. He never made a choice. He said, Lord, I've done wrong and I'm in your hands. God was nice. He gave him options. When I was a kid, I just got smacked. You know? I mean, some, some people around here might say, well, at least I got to pick my switch. You're like, I got hit with a what's close. I mean, I didn't have a switch. Sometimes it was close, might have been one of these. Making Kool-Aid, I say something, what time, that spoon, right back in the Kool-Aid, you know? God gave him options. And even then, he didn't try to weasel and think, okay, okay, let's see. So if I do the three years of famine, uh, let's say I have this many people die over there. No, let's not do that. That's a, that's a long time. Well, hey, I might be dead in three. Well, nah. Okay, three months, three months. Okay, am I going to run from these guys for three months? But man, if they catch me, that's it. And then Israel, you yeah. know. Okay, three. He didn't do all any of that. Lord said this, this, or this. He gave him three, uh, three options, and he says, "I've messed up." This is him pretty much going, "Stop giving me choices. I've been choosing wrong, over and over. I'm in your hands." He's finally just submitted to God. His response this time is submission. And what does God do? God gives him work, gives him forgiveness. And he gives him revival. And from this point, you'll see where Israel just grows. And Israel continues to thrive again. And it's back on the right page. So see, we are called as a church. We are called as an individual person, the Great Commission, to bring as many people to know God as possible. But what we overlook in Scripture 
Scripture does not say anything about memorizing Scripture. Scripture does not say anything about training you on interpersonal communications. Anytime that you see a major movement of God where people are coming to know Him, it is because of an internal revival that man itself through worship. In fact, one of my favorite scriptures is in Psalms where it says, He, uh, he broke me and, and raised me out of a dark pit, put me on a pedestal and gave me a new song to sing. And as I sang that song, other people heard me and they began to look upon me, hear that song and fear me. And when they feared me for that song, they began to fear him and they sang as well. So sometimes for that revival to happen, maybe it's in your own personal life. You need to recognize where you are and why you're there. And you need to recognize who's sovereign of you, even though you're there. In your family, you might need to have a revival through repentance. Now, don't get this confused and think that you sin, God punishes, you sin, God punishes, you sin, God punishes, that kind of thing. But sin does create confusion and blindness. And God is always there to bless us. And sometimes we can't see it because we're so wrapped up in our own binding. Your final note, your little tidbit to take home. Delight in ourselves leads to distress. We saw that in David. He delighted in knowing the number of his army and then later became distressed because of the sin. So delight in ourselves leads to distress, but delight in the Lord leads to divine intervention. When he delighted in himself, he fell to sin and he was given options that all equaled death. They all equaled death. And he fell distressed. But then when he delighted in the Lord, Lord, I deserve it. Matter of fact, take my life. I delight in you. I messed up. I am yours, and I'm sorry I have failed you. I don't want to choose. Do what you must. He delighted in the Lord. He trusted in the Lord. Divine intervention. He stepped in and stopped it. He stepped in and stopped it. So remember, it's about our response to sin. If we delight in the Lord, He will divinely intervene in our lives daily. If you feel like you're in a dark place, don't forget, you are never under the mercy of Satan. He's just waiting for you to repent so that He can divine, divinely intervene. And there's no hole too deep for God's arm. There's no place too dark for God's light. So my prayer this morning is, you stop thinking you need to hide your sin. You stop thinking you're alone in your sin. You stop thinking you're above people next to you because of their sin. And that you respond to it with a heart that delights in the Lord so that we can have some divine intervention in our homes, in our town, in our county especially, in our state, and in our country. Because we need it. And it's what's crazy is it all ties back to our individual internal revivals. And the only way that can happen is to respond to sin accordingly. Amen? Let us pray. God, we, we again thank you for this opportunity to worship you this morning. We have heard your word this morning. And I pray that like Scripture tells us, that we not just be hearers, we be doers. So God, 
for all of us here, for the believers, that it's going to be a daily, a daily task, but that we respond to our sin with a desire for a clean heart so that we can worship you for spirit and truth, even if it's only for a short period of time before we sin again, that there may be even a split second, a moment, where we can just feel you in your fullness. Even if it takes locking ourselves in a closet by ourselves, leaving us to just clear our thoughts and only think of you. God, I pray that we respond to your spirit this morning and repent of those things. And God, for those who who don't believe, I, I pray that their response is also to not highlight the negativity in their life or the fear of, I don't want to do this because I know I'm immediately going to dishonor him because I'm not ready to make these major life changes that he's going to call me to make. Nobody's ever ready. And God, I pray that you reveal to them that it's going to be one step at a time, but every step is next to you. God, I pray that this morning we all leave with an understanding that you're always there, you're always listening, you're always talking. And you don't base our worth off of the good works in our life. And equally, you don't base our worth off the sin in our life. You base them off of our obedience to you, our love for you, and our faith for you. That's why you came and sought us despite our sin. So God, this morning, I pray that we can cast aside our sin, worship you, come to you, bow down to you, pray to you, love you, serve you. Let this morning be the beginning of the individual revivals of each and every person in this room. And when we come on Sundays, God, let it not be a gas station where we feel like we fill up. Let it be the place where we celebrate with our friends the revival that we have seen in our lives as a result throughout the week. God, we're thankful for your presence this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist. 